Um, whose are these? I will gladly give them to you. No one's going to admit that they're your reading glasses. They have purple frames. Aha, uh-huh. very good. There we go. Now you'll be able to see when we read this morning. Um, this week will be September 1st. September 1st is the opening day for dove season, which is like the first official hunting season of the year. So like I'm, re- I'm just excited. I'm, uh, I, I was so excited this week, I don't even have a sermon. We're just going to read the passage and go home. Um, I, uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll find something to talk about. Um, but I, I'm not kidding about like it's, it's moving toward fall and it's almost hunting season and I'm excited. Um, it's very worldly and carnal of me, but I'm a very worldly and carnal person. Uh, we are going to read this passage together here in just a minute. Uh, I want to add my welcome to, uh, there's a handful of visitors here this morning. My name's Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and uh, we're really glad that you are part of our worship gathering this morning. Um, we have already begun worshiping. We've been worshiping well already this morning. Um, Vicki, thank you for leading us in music this morning. And uh, Matt and Will, thanks for your parts in the service. And that um, I just want to highlight kind of sometimes I think we just do what we do, but I want to draw, point out a couple things. Um, like that first prayer that Matt y- uses a passage of Scripture, Will, Matt, uh, kind of rotate between the two of them. Um, that's, that's a very intentional time of prayer. That's, we, we call that our pastoral prayer. So, so one of the pastors will kick our service off with an intentional prayer that's, that's meant to gather us, to shepherd us, to, for us to worship together in prayer. And we, we spent some time talking about prayer uh, a month or so ago, about what we do when we pray together. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to really seek to be in prayer while the pastor is leading in prayer. I know we used to kind of tie that pastoral prayer in with the announcements, and we're kind of pulling it apart, separating, the, separating it out a little bit. The announcements, any, anyone can give announcements. We're happy. In fact, if, you, if you're the kind of person who enjoys speaking in front of a group of people and you'd like to be part of the announcement team, I've just, as of this moment, am establishing an announcement team. If you'd like to make announcements on Sunday morning, we'd be happy for you to come and be, be part of that. Um, and uh, so, anyway, uh, Karen, do you want to be on the announcements team? Uh, she, she has to say yes because I'm putting her on the spot. Um, I'm not obligating you. But we will, um, but I, I do want you to know that we're, you know, the things that we do, we do on purpose. And um, there's a, there is method behind most of our madness anyway. And if there's not, then let us know. Uh, say, why do you do this? And if we can't give you a good answer, then we probably need to, to take a look at why we're doing what we're doing. First Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 18 all the way down through chapter 2, verse 5. Now, these, there are parts of the Bible that I refer to as being dense. And by dense, I don't mean, I don't even mean necessarily hard to understand. There's just a lot that's crammed in to these verses right here. I, I always think this is a silly way for me to think of it, but I think of it like, uh, you know, the, um, the frozen orange juice concentrate that you would get, maybe they still make it, right? And then you put it in with water and you mix it around and it's like one part orange juice concentrate, three parts water, and then you have actual orange juice. I feel like what's going, what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through and following is like it, there's just doctrine and theology concentrate here. And this morning we're going to have to add some water to it. My illustration just got weird. Um, let's read these verses together. Verse 18. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it, the word of the cross, is the power of God. For it is written, this is written in Isaiah, the the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What is that all about? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks 
seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the word of the cross. We preach Christ crucified, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, they're going to trip over it, and folly to Gentiles, they think it's silly, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God isn't foolish and God isn't weak. This is comparing. Like, if God had a weakness, it's still infinitely stronger than the strength of man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And all God's people said amen. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2 is incredibly important. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord, you know that there's a lot here. So help us in these few minutes ahead of us to understand what you would have us understand from this passage this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. There are some topics that can be extremely divisive. I mean, almost as soon as you mention the topic, people start taking sides. Right? We, can, we can talk about football. If we talk about college football, in this room, right, you're going to have some Raiders start to gather around each other and some Aggies start to gather around each other. If we mention the topic of politics, right, that's an incredibly divisive, just the word itself almost gets us anxious, right? And then if I, if I mention some political issue, man, things can get divisive really fast. I can mention something like food and the organic people and the non-organic people begin their separation amongst each other. The mere mention of a word can have incredibly powerful effect on people. Just a word. The mention of a word can have powerful effect on people. And brothers and sisters, there is a word, there is a word that divides all of humanity. In verse 18, we see exactly what I'm talking about here. Look in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is a word. My main point this morning is this. The word of the cross has powerful impact on everyone. And we see here in verse 18 that the word of the cross is incredibly divisive. What, before we even talk about the divisiveness of the word of the cross or the, the way that the word of the cross separates all of humanity eternally and finally, what is the word of the cross? Paul references it here several times throughout. He uses different synonyms and different phrases to describe the word of the cross, the, the preaching of the cross, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, yeah, the crucifixion of Christ. There are different words. Verse 2 I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is the word of the cross? Well, simply put, the word of the cross is the preaching, the teaching, the message 
about Jesus Christ. It's the message about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion on a cross. We're, we're so used to the message of Christianity. Many of us have heard the gospel. We've heard the word of the cross so many times that it doesn't shock us the way it would if it was our very first time hearing the word of the cross. You need to be saved. What do you mean I need to be saved? What do I need to be saved from? Well, you need to be saved from your sin. Oh, okay. And, and well, who's going to save me? Well, Jesus Christ, and he died on a cross. Well, it sounds like he needs to be saved. Like, what, how's he going to save me? This guy, like, how does this work, right? And we're very familiar with the word of the cross. But the word of the cross to those who haven't heard it, the word of the cross to those who don't believe sounds as foolish as the illustration I just made it out to be. Let me walk through very quickly and very briefly just the explanation of the word of the cross. God created the world. And he created a man and a woman. He put them in a garden. He created Adam and Eve, made them in his image, and they rebelled against God. And we, like they, rebel against God as well. And there's a punishment for our rebellion against God. That punishment is eternal separation from God forever in the lake of fire in hell. But God loved the world. God loved the world that rebelled against him. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and he lived for 33 years and he kept all of the laws of God perfectly. Then he was arrested by some Jewish religious leaders and there was a false, phony trial that was held and he was prosecuted for blasphemy and he was handed over to the Romans and they put him on a cross and crucified him. The Bible makes it clear that all of this was the will of God. It was the will of God to take his son and for his son to die on the cross. A horrible, painful, humiliating, dishonorable way to die. And it was in his dying on the cross that Jesus experienced separation from God and bore God's wrath against sin that you and I as sinners should have experienced. And now his life and his death are substitutes for those who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus for their righteousness. Jesus was raised from the dead three days later and had victory over. We sang, praise God, he is alive this morning. So the word of the cross is a word about the God-man Jesus Christ who was humiliatingly crucified so that he can rescue you from your own humiliating crucifixion, your own eternal separation from God. This is, very simply put, the word of the cross. Now, the word of the cross does several things, and we're going to see in this passage three, three groups or three pairs of things that the word of the cross addresses. First of all, we'll see two groups of people that the word of the cross divides. Secondly, we'll see two worldly traits that the word of the cross confronts. And thirdly, we'll see two effects that the word of the cross will have. So two groups of people, two worldly traits, two effects that the word of the cross will have. All of this is tied into and affected by the word of the cross. Okay, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If, if I said, we're going to divide this room up into the two most obvious groups of distinction, how would we, who would we put on one side and who would we put on the other? Well, we might, we might put the young on one side and the old on the other, but we'd have to figure out where's the line that distinguishes the young from the old. We might put the rich on one side and the poor on the other side. But again, we would have to figure out where's the line that differentiates between the rich and the poor. We might put the, the educated on one side and the uneducated on the other side. But again, how much education is enough education to distinguish between the two? We might put Texans on one side and foreigners on the other but where do I go? I mean, I've been here a while now, so I'd kind of like to claim Texas citizenship. The Bible makes it clear, though, that there's one thing 
that very, very clearly divides all of humanity. Who are the two groups? Look in verse 18. Who would you say are the two? Who are the two groups? They're described in verse 18 as those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. In my Bible, I literally, after the word perishing, before the word but, I have a line drawn, a vertical line drawn to remind me what the word of the cross does. The word of the cross is a division. It, is, it divides all of humanity for all of eternity into two groups of people. What we're going to cover here in the next, this first point here, the next five to ten minutes of this sermon is the most serious content in all of the Bible. I cannot do justice to the seriousness of these next minutes here. I will try with using the Word of God to show how incredibly important it is to believe what God's Word says about this and to be affected by it. The, the, there are two groups of people that the Word of the cross divides, the perishing and those who are being saved. Or we would say it this way, the lost and the saved. Every single human being is on one side or the other of the cross, okay? So we've got a cross here on the front of the podium, right? Everyone is either perishing or they're saved. Those who don't repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible describes as perishing. Now, this is very politically incorrect, but it is very biblically correct to talk about the perishing and to talk about hell. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to some scriptures because the, the, the scriptures are what will have strength and uh, conviction in our hearts. Do, we're going we're to look at a couple of different passages of scripture. Look, let's go first to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to start in verse 41, then I'm just going to skip down to verse 46. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says this, Then Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus is looking at those who have rejected him those on his left, those who are not his people, those who have not put faith in him. And he says to them, depart from me, you're, you're cursed. You're, the, word, the, the right theological word here is you're damned. Depart from me into the eternal fire. What kind of fire? I was talking with one of my kids uh, recently, and they were asking about hell, and they were asking, is it forever? Like, are you alert and aware forever? And I wish I had a different answer than the biblical answer. But the biblical answer is that damnation, eternal damnation is eternal. It is forever. Look down in verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Punishment for their sins that is eternal. Now, I know that there are some very sensitive souls in here this morning, and there's others of you who, you know, you're kind of like, ah, I'm not sure if I believe all this stuff. Let me just tell you, this is true. And for, for you, the, those of you who are sensitive souls, like, I'm, I'm, I tend to be that way myself, and I read a verse like this, and I think, can it mean anything other than what it means? These will go away into eternal punishment. So hell is real. Hell is described in terms of physical torment, a fire that is experienced forever. Now take your Bibles and turn to the uh, book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I don't always have you flip to a lot of passages of Scripture, but I, just the Word of God has to do this convincing and conviction here this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, They will suffer 
the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So here again, it's, hell is described in terms of eternal torment, eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord. So you're separated from God, and now here's what makes hell hopeless. You are forever separated from the presence of God. There's no, there isn't an, if you're under the sound of my voice this morning, there is, there is hope for you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can switch to the other side of this division here, this word of the cross that divides. But those who die in their sins, there is only eternal punishment that awaits them, and they are separated from the presence of God, away from the presence of God. Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. Please turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, describing the torment of those who are perishing, those who die in their sins without Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. But the description is a description of hell. Torment forever and ever, and they don't have any, there's just no rest. No rest for their soul. And then one more passage, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. More, few, few pages over, Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Again, let me make this clear. This is those that are living in those sins. Almost all of us in here have committed all of these sins. And most of us have committed all of these sins more than once. But these are those who have not turned from their sins and put faith in Christ. These are those who are living and choosing these sins over choosing Christ. Their portion will be, their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, friends that are here this morning, hell is real and it's eternal and it's conscious torment apart from God. I don't like saying that, but I would be unkind and unloving not to tell you that. If it's true, which it is, then we need to know, and we need to know what to do about it. This would, this would be horribly unkind and mean and inappropriately scary to talk about if it wasn't true. But it is true. Every New Testament author writes about hell. Jesus teaches about hell more than Jesus teaches about heaven. He believed in it. He talked about it. He warned people about it. He gave his life to keep us from going there. And the declaration of what Christ has done to save you from hell, that's the word of the cross. The word of the cross is a message. And what a human does with that message is what determines on which side of that divide they're on. The word of the cross is what divides. And for those who are perishing, they hear the word of the cross and it is folly, it is foolish, it is silly to them. We're more enlightened than that. Science has disproved all of that crazy stuff. I was reading something um, online uh, earlier this week. It was posted by a, someone in the hunting industry. And they, they, they had read something about the biblical account of creation and that sort of thing. And they were just mocking, just mocking how anyone could believe this sort of thing. And many people joined in with their comments uh, and on social media talking about how unenlightened and how his, history and science has all disproved all of that religious stuff. Brothers and sisters, the word of the cross is the word of Jesus Christ's work on the cross to save people from perishing. And those who put their faith in Jesus 
God rescues out of the perishing and into those who are being saved. That's the other group of people here. The saved, those who have believed the word of the cross. And listen, you don't become a part of that group. You don't become a part of the, um, uh, the saved by being good or by going to church or by being better than others around you. None of those things are what saves you. You're being saved when you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So let me ask you, if you stood before Jesus right now, if you died some tragic death today, God forbid that any of us would, but we all know how life works. If you died today and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? What would be your answer? Don't, think, don't answer for someone else in the room. You answer for you. What would you tell him? Would you say, well, I've, I've been a pretty good person? You haven't, and that's the wrong answer. Let me give you some, some wrong answers. I try to be good. I go to church. I've always been a Christian. How about this? I believe that Jesus is real. That could be maybe a little bit tricky. What do you mean by that? The Bible says that the devil believes in Jesus. The demons believe and they tremble. So to believe that there is a historical figure, a God-man named Jesus, is different than putting your faith and trust in what he did for you, looking to him to be your savior and ceasing from all efforts to save yourself. The right answer is, I've repented of my sin, and I'm trusting in Jesus alone to be my Savior. So let me ask you this morning, which side of the cross are you on? You are on one side or the other. There, like there's, not, there's no third option. There is no fence straddling. There is no plan C. Like it's perishing or being saved. Those are the options, and every soul in human history fits into one of those two. I trust that you are one of the ones who have turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. But friends, for those who, of us who are in the being saved, on the being saved side, not a, probably a great way to say that, but you, I think you know what I mean in the context of this sermon. What are we supposed to think and do about the other group that are divide, on the other side of this divide? I mean, hell is real. I remember Dr. Bob Jones III used to say this. He would say this in chapel. I think we have this on the, on the uh, screen here. When we were in chapel... Dr. Bob Jones III would lead us together in chapel in saying this, the most sobering reality in the world today. Actually, he would say, the most sobering reality in the world today, and we would respond with, is that people are dying and going to hell today. What occupies your time and attention and heart and passion? Is it, is it ever anything like this? Like, do is it ever on your conscience? Is it ever on your heart? Is it ever on your mind that, that there are those in your life, in your family, in your community who don't know Christ? And that God has put you in their lives to be salt and light so that they would come out of, being the, uh, out of the group of, be, of perishing into the group of being saved? Friends, the word of the cross powerfully divides. And we have the word of the cross we, we, have, we have the answer. We have the solution. We have the hope. The word of the cross powerfully divides. Let's, let's be carriers of the word of the cross. The second thing that we see here is that two worldly traits that the word of the cross confronts. Now, this is the majority of the rest of chapter 1. We see that there are two worldly traits that the word of the cross confronts. Now, I'm going, to read through, I'm going to read through these verses, and you see if you notice what the word of the cross confronts for the Corinthian believers, or for, the, for the, 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 the people that live in Corinth. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Look at verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, it, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, what does the word of the cross confront in the Corinthian culture? I think there are two things that we see as we read through this passage that it confronts. First, it confronts wisdom, the wisdom of the age, and it confronts the power of the age. Wisdom and power. Corinth was, would be similar to a New York City of the day. Money influence, power, education, like a city where everyone comes. If you look, if you can find it, and I don't mind if you hunt for it while I'm talking here, but a lot of you have maps in the back of your Bible, and you'll see, if you see where Corinth is located, it's on this really skinny little isthmus between two uh, two larger masses of body, and there's water on either side. It's obvious. Oh, if you want to get from Right to left, you got to go through Corinth. If you want to get from top to bottom, you got to go like Corinth. Is, it's obvious why Corinth is this incredible city. And it's this incredible city full of really smart people and really powerful people. And just like then, today, people want to believe in something that's wise and wonderful something that makes sense logically, something that's impressive, something that adds to my, uh, um, my self-esteem and also my, my stature in the community, something that adds to my bank account. Pe- people want something wise and impressive, but the word of the cross is none of these things. It is a word that seems foolish to those who are in the world. Read through this passage again and notice the phrase, in the world. There are those who are being redeemed and there's those in the world. And the Bible makes it clear that the message, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It's silly. It doesn't make sense. It's a message of weakness to those who are in the world and those who are um, perishing. The, the Bible says in, in this passage, the Jews want signs. They, they want demonstrations of wisdom and of a, of a powerful message. And the Greeks, they, they want wisdom as well, right? I mean, we, we still read Greek. Um, I mean, the New Testament was written in Greek. The, the, um, uh, the philosophers of the day, Plato, Aristotle, these are, these are Greek philosophers, The Greeks, they want wisdom. They want something. Listen, and this is the problem with all of humanity. I want something to affirm me. I want something to add to the life that I've already chosen for myself. I want God to come in and help me with what I already value and already think is is great. And the word of the cross humiliates. Wait a second. The guy that's going to save me hung on a Roman cross? He lost. How's he going to? How's he going to help me? That is a foolish that is a foolish message you're preaching to me. I'm a Corinthian. I got money. I've got education. I know how life works. I mean, look, look at me in my world. I I make sense and and I'm powerful and wise in my world and you're bringing me this message of some crucified Jewish person. Uh, that's okay. I'm out. People wanted something that would correspond to the cultural values of their day, and many people today want that same thing. They want a message today. They want a message in our world. We want things that are inclusive and tolerant and loving and a message where everyone is okay. 
I want a Christian, this is not me, others might say, I want a Christianity where everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, is included. That's not Christianity. Christianity divides. The word of the cross divides. Some people want a message that's inclusive and tolerant. Others want to be part of something that includes power and and smart people, influence and and respectable, where Christianity uh, uh, raises you up in, in the community, the message that would improve your status. This message, though, is not the message the world would come up with or the message that the world wants. Look again, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. That's the word of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. And how do people respond to it? How do people respond to it? Well, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. What, what, is this, what happens if you're walking and there is a stumbling block in front of you? You fall. It's a stumbling. They trip over it. The Jews trip over it. And the, and the Greeks just think it's, it's silly. It's, or the Gentiles, it's just folly to them. I, I kind of like the, the descriptive nature of the word folly. That's, that's foolish. I'm not, I'm, not going, I'm not going to believe that. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of the mighty warrior named Cain, uh, Naaman? And, and Naaman got leprosy. You remember this story? And he had a little uh, servant girl in his, in his house, and she said, you should go see the prophet Elisha in my country. He has been known to do a lot of incredible miracles, and he'll, and, and he'll rescue you. And so Naaman goes to this prophet, Elisha, and he sees the prophet Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even go and see him. Elisha sends a servant out to see him. And the servant tells this mighty man who has been brought low by this leprosy, this disease that would eventually kill him, a disease that makes the extremities of your body kind of rot off. It was a horrible disease. Naaman has leprosy, and this servant comes out and says to him, go to the Jordan River and wash in it seven times. Or I think the idea is like dunk yourself under. Go in and come out of the water in the Jordan River and do that seven times. And Naaman hears, listen, think about what we're talking about right now. Naaman hears the word from that servant. And what does he think about that word? It's humiliating. He rejects it. I'm not going to, that, I'm a mighty person. And that doesn't, like, that's not how people are healed. Your river, we have a lot better rivers in the country that I come from. That river's dirty. I don't want anything to do with that. The message, the word of the cross, the word that came from that servant to Naaman, Naaman thought, Like, that's too humiliating. I'm not going to do that. Now, Naaman had another servant who was with him at the time. And you can just imagine the servant, right? Like, I mean, this is Naaman. He's got leprosy, but he's still like a a mighty commander in the army. And he kind of sidles over to to Naaman and says, hey, what do you got to lose, man? You got leprosy. (laughs) Like, let's just try it. If it doesn't work, I won't tell anybody. You don't have to tell anybody, right? I got another change of clothes for you over here. We'll just, let's just, we'll sneak. I know there's a little bend around the corner of the river here. We'll just go sneak over there and try it. And Naaman does, as you know, he does choose to to do it, and he humbles himself, and he was healed. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The message of the cross is a message that is foolish to those who hear it. The folly of what we preach. Now, I think the old King James Version said the foolishness of preaching. I like this, this translation actually represents the Greek better. It's not that preaching is foolish, that the act of standing in front of a group of people and speaking is foolish. The content, the word of the cross, is considered to be, to be foolish. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone? And maybe halfway or two-thirds of the way through sharing the gospel, you start to realize this person thinks I'm silly. Like this, this message, like they don't think I'm cool. They don't think this is a cool thing. They're kind of ready for me to be done. And you even begin to feel a little bit self-conscious about it. Like, oh man, it, it really is kind of weird, right? Like, hey, let's... Uh, 
in your heart, just say these magic words, and then you go get to go to Candyland someday, and you don't have to burn in hell forever. And like all of a sudden, you're realizing, whoa, th- this does, this message does sound foolish. So if the message sounds foolish, how do any of us believe? If the message sounds foolish, why are there so many people gathered here right now who believe this message that sounds foolish? Paul has already been emphasizing this truth earlier in this book in 1 Corinthians, but I, I just want, I, I want you to notice again that it's, look in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, those who come to believe that the message is a wise message and those who experience the power of that message are those who are called by God. Look in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise or powerful or noble. In fact, God chose foolish and weak and low and despised in this world. God chose. Look in verse 27. But God chose. Who is ultimately responsible for your salvation? This, it's debated. It shouldn't be. God is a God who calls. God is a God who chooses. In the natural man, we hear the preaching of the word of the cross, and we think, that's foolish. That's folly. God is a God who calls. God is a God who chooses. God is the one who initiates, who sparks that life into our hearts and into our minds. And those are the ones who see this message. This message is powerful. Why is it powerful, and how is it powerful? It's powerful because it takes a dead person, and it makes them alive. It's powerful because it takes a person who thinks that's foolish and convinces them it's not foolish. It's the only truth in the world. This is the powerful message of the gospel. God didn't use wise and powerful people to promote a wise and powerful message. This isn't a PhD giving a TED talk and convincing everyone why they're right about something. This is knuckleheads like me and you, whom God has redeemed and shown his love and saved us, going to other knuckleheads in our community and saying, hey, I've got a message, and sharing the word of the cross and then trusting God to do what only God can do to bring about life in that person. Thirdly, there are two effects that the word of the cross will have, two effects in the lives of people that the word of the cross will have for those for those, who are, for those who believe the word of the cross, I'll put it that way. That, that's a better way for me to say it. For Christians, there are two effects, there are two results, there are two responses that the word of the cross will have. The first one is humility. So look in, verse, I'll read verse 28 and 29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This foolish message demands a response. People either reject it in pride or they humble themselves and believe it. You can't be proud as you receive Christ. To receive Christ as your Savior means you've come to a place where you understand, I am not sufficient for me. I can't figure my way. There's some really smart people, some really capable people in this room. There are people that like if anything in this county were to break, you could fix it. Computers, tractors, vehicle bodies, right? We got nurses in here like it doesn't matter what breaks, there's people in this room that can fix it. But our biggest problem, the biggest problem is not our body. Our biggest problem is not our tractor. Our biggest problem is not our farm. It's not our house. It's not our appliances. Our biggest problem is our sin problem. And you can't fix that. And that's humbling. That's humbling for people that are used to pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and know how to make money and know how to buy more land and make more money and do this and make more money. Like, we've got it together. In the history of the world, this room has it together. This is a great room full of people who can know how to 
solve problems and fix things. But our biggest problem is impossible for us to fix in and of ourselves. That's a humbling thing, that your biggest problem you can't fix. Imagine being in God's presence and feeling like you're something, right? You did good picking me, all right? I would have probably gotten here without you, but thanks for, you know, just making sure. No, right? We, we, don't, we don't feel proud in the presence of God. We can't feel proud in the presence of God. And God says, look, I'm, I'm bringing a message that's going to sound foolish so that when you believe it, even everyone else in the world who rejects me, they're going to hear that message and think, man, I kind of feel sad for those people over there at Liberty. They believe that foolish message. There's so much better things to think and so many better things to believe. That foolish message, and then look at them. They could be so much more and do so much more if they didn't tie themselves down with that foolish message. God chose 27, the foolish and weak and low and despised in this world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So do you know the first response, the first effect that humility or that uh, the word of the cross brings is humility? And you might look at the second thing and say, well, boastfulness is the opposite of humility. No, boastfulness is not the opposite of humility. Pride is the opposite of humility. Boastfulness, well, let's just see what this passage says about boastfulness. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you know that you are supposed to be a boastful, braggadocious braggart? You're supposed to be, but not in your abilities, not in your strength, not in your, the might of your flesh or the might of your brain or the power of your bank account. None of those things are to be boasted about. You're to boast in the Lord. That's why I had Matt read Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 this morning, verses 23 and 24. This is what I mean, look, it says in verse 31, so that as it is written, and then it says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Some of you have footnotes in your Bible or you have cross-references in your Bible. And in your Bible, it will say, Jer 9, 23. That's because Paul knew the passage that Matt read this morning. Paul knew Matt was going to read that this morning. And so, no, but he, that same passage is the one that Paul is referring to here. And he says, look, let the one who boasts, if you're going to boast, if you know this foolish message and it's had a powerful effect in your life, boast in it. Boast in the Lord, boast in Christ. And then Paul says in verse 2, <coughs> well, I'll, I'll read verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't, I didn't bring the message. I didn't bring the word of the cross in a way that would make you think I'm so awesome. Wow, we should believe it. Listen to that guy. He's smart. Well-trained, articulate, handsome, has PowerPoint. For I decided to know one thing among you. I, that's what that means when he says, I decided to know nothing among you. That's like, I, I'm, I'm not making a big deal out of anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you know what that phrase means? Jesus Christ and him crucified? That's the word of the cross. That's the word of the cross. I'm coming to you in Corinth, Paul. I'm coming to you, Corinthians. I've got one message for you. There's a lot of things I can say. There's a lot of things I want you to learn. But look, I'm making a really big deal out of one thing. And listen, brothers and sisters, when a church or a ministry or a group of people start to make a big deal out of other things, they always go off track 100% of the time. They get off in the weeds, they get off in the ditch, they get off in something else. When something other than the word of the cross is the central focal point, the primary message that they're proclaiming. May God help us to be this and to stay the course on this being the number one thing. The, the thing that we know, um, I decided to, that we would say the same thing. We decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 5, and all of this, and I'm concluding, all of this, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I mean, imagine if I did come to you with a message that was incredibly well-crafted and incredibly well-reasoned and well-researched and scientific and was obvious that it was going to increase your bank account significantly and give you wealth, good standing in the community. 
if you would just do what I do and be like me and you would come and you would watch and you think, man, Jeremy's really articulate and everything he says makes sense. And it's, and it, and it's uh, a really wise, uh, rational, everyone in the world sees it this way and, it see, and it's obvious that it's wise and it's powerful. What that does, it either puts your trust in me or it puts my, your trust in you. And Jesus is saying, those are the wrong places to put your trust. Paul is saying, verse five, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All of this is so that the powerful, foolish word of the cross of Christ will be magnified. And the power that is God's will be magnified, will be seen as great. It is eternally critical. I'm using both of those words on on purpose. It's eternally critical that your faith rests not in the wisdom of men, but in the word of the cross. It is the power of God for salvation. Bow your heads, please, and close your eyes, and I'll ask Vicki to come to the piano. We'll sing a song here in just a moment. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and put faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are of the perishing group of people And the Bible says that you will be separated from God and Jesus will look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. So turn today and trust in him. You can do that. It's simply receiving the gift of salvation. I or one of the other pastors or many of the brothers and sisters in this room would be very happy to talk with you about that this morning if you have any questions or concerns. For the rest of us in here this morning, I think there are several takeaways, but maybe one of the primary ones is this, that we should carry this word of the cross and not be ashamed, not be embarrassed. Let the work of God's power be done through it. And let's take it to the perishing. Let's bring this message to the perishing. Father, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, in our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, and now we're going to sing of the greatness of our God.